up on today's show, Danielle Smith has been sworn in as Alberta's 19th Premier, the third female Premier. Now she has to take on Barry Morishita, leader of the Alberta Party in a by-election in Brooks Medicine Hat. The entire board and the CEO of Hockey Canada has resigned, and Canadian youth are pessimistic. And you know what? They have good reason to be. Danielle Smith is scheduled to be sworn in as Alberta's next premier. Now, when she is sworn in, she becomes the third female premier in Alberta's history. No other province can make a similar claim. Um, Three. Okay. Is is it progress? Are we, are we, because there's been so much focus on getting more women into politics and we know some of the barriers, the toxic environment that um, female politicians have to face online and in person in some cases just uh, keeps a lot of people out, understandably. So how does this fit into the bigger picture? Are we making gains? And, you know, it's important. How important is it to join us and uh, talk a bit about that? We have Dr. Susan Franceschette, who is a professor of political science at the University of Calgary and co-author of Cabinets, Minister and Gender. Uh, Dr. Franceschette, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Oh, thanks for inviting me. So the headline there, um, more female premiers than any province in, in Canada. Obviously, that sounds like good news, right? I mean, that three female premiers, that's that's something. It Absolutely. And I think um, I'm certainly someone who will always celebrate when, um, you know, when we reach a milestone in terms of women's representation. And I think that having three different women hold the premiership um, tells us something about women's presence in politics being normalized. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, it, and we are now going to be having a second election where the you know when when the um, spring election comes around, where the top two contenders are are women, right? So where you know the outcome is likely going to be yeah. another woman premier and. We had that the last time that um, when Danielle Smith was Wild Rose leader and Alison Redford. Redford. That's right. And and I think what that does is it sends signals about, you know, yeah, women's presence in politics is normalized, which there is quite a bit of political science research showing that that does have an impact on um, especially young uh, young girls and, and women who yeah. see that and think that, oh, you know, that's actually something I can do, whereas normally especially young girls, would just tune out of politics because they look at a, you know, a, a bunch of leaders debating and it's all men. So they assume that politics just isn't for them. Uh, yeah, and a, a couple of things that I want to I want to come back to. Um, first and foremost, when you mentioned the number of prominent women we have in Alberta politics, I mean, yeah, of course, you're absolutely right when you take a look at the general election. Odds are, I mean, you know, a million to one, we're going to have another female premier elected next spring. But even if you just take a look at the UCP leadership race, Doctor, uh, four of the seven candidates for leadership of the UCP were female as well. So we, we've managed to at least uh, get to that place where we have a lot of women in very high-profile positions of politics in Alberta. It's not just, you know, at the premier level, it's right across the board. Exactly. So I think that is also, and I, I, I um, said as much when, when it was clear how many women were competing for the leadership, that this is a really good thing, because for a long time there was, you know, when you would have um, gender equality advocates saying that, oh, we need to have uh, more women in politics and parties need to do a better job promoting women. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you would hear folks saying things like, oh, well, women just aren't interested. They're not, you know, they're not 
so ambitious politically. And I think this this demonstrates that that is simply not true. Women do want to, um, you know, participate in politics and they are willing to throw their hat in the ring. And I think that was um, that was a really good thing. It was great to see so many women on the stage. Um, I do want, however, to to say that even though I think it is terrific to see more women's presence in politics being more regularized and normalized, that does not mean that, you know, all the advocates of um, gender equality should, you know, should simply, you know, stop pushing for equality and say, oh, everything is fine now in Alberta or Canada for... Uh, for women, because there's a whole other set of questions about, well, these, you know, these may be, um, you know, these may be women, but does that mean they're actually going to use their positions of policymaking influence to support things, policies that are actually good for women? Again, a couple of things there, and I think you make such a good point. We're we're nowhere close to being saying, hey, mission accomplished. No, because we know and we hear about it every single day and we see it every single day, the kind of environment that all politicians are, are subjected to in this country, but it, it's a completely different level when it comes to female politicians, the vitriol, the hate speech, the the nonsense that they deal with primarily online. We still haven't dealt with that, and that, that remains a major barrier, doesn't it? Uh, I agree entirely. So it's kind of an interesting phenomenon in, in terms of, and I, I mean, it's a horrible phenomenon, but it's interesting in terms of, I don't think we know yet for sure what the consequences are in terms of like keeping women out or in some cases making <laughs> making women feel even more resolved to yeah. get involved and 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 you know take this battle on but here's what we do know we do know that women politicians are subject to much more um much more um, like vitriolic threats of violence um, they often need more security. I mean, Rachel Notley, when she was premier, had you know way more threats and 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 things going on and a need for security than previous premiers. We know this to be true elsewhere in Canada and also around the world. So that's that is definitely an issue, and it, it remains to be seen what will happen with um, with Daniel Smith. But it's unlikely that she will escape that that kind of uh, that kind of thing. Um, what I, I, there is some concern that that will, you know, that that will like keep women out and make them think, oh, this just isn't for me. I don't want to do this. But I also think that, you know, women are stepping up and they are participating. I mean, there's, there's some evidence in, in the U.S. that, um, you know, more women are seeking nominations and running for office than ever before, despite the fact that, you know, there's been some very high profile mm-hmm. examples of how it can be quite dangerous. Um, so I think that's that you're right. That is one thing to keep in mind. But I also think when it comes to, you know, whether we can, you know, just say hey, mission accomplished, we're doing great. I think that we have to start thinking about like what the policy consequences are going to be, especially because we have, you know, we are going to have in the next election two women running um, against each other, leading two very yeah. different parties that have very, very different um, policy consequences for women, right? If we think about women in the province being um, being the the um, you know the primary workers in uh, say in the public sector, which you know the two parties have very different approaches to dealing with 
um, public sector workers and, um, and, you know, the professions that women dominate, whether it's teaching, nursing, healthcare. Um, so I think all of those sorts of things are, are important and need to be taken into consideration. We can't assume that just because we have women in politics or women leaders, that, that, is, that their policies are necessarily going to be good for women, even though I think it's good for women kind of writ large and society writ large yeah. to say, hey, women belong here. I'm wondering in terms of what we see around the, the world with so many young women in positions of power, and I mean, in some of the very prominent ones, like in New Zealand and in Finland and um, now in the UK, and I mean, we're seeing it more and more, and they're really taking a commanding presence on the world stage. Could that be having an influence on what we see in Canadian politics, do you think? Um, I, it's, it's possible, um, but I think that even, it's also possible that these things are just sort of going on in their own countries due to things that are happening in political parties, in society. And there is, I think, increasingly this idea that politics is important. And so people are paying attention. You know, the stakes seem really high right now. Yeah, they do. And, you know, so there's also evidence that young people are um, getting slightly more politically um, mobilized or politically engaged. And it's that young generation where I think you see, um, you know, fewer, you know, gender roles being less constraining. And so perhaps it's, you know, among that generation that women are willing to get in, get involved. Although I still, I don't want to, um, you know, let the, um, especially the more traditional political parties, some of them have not been you know, terribly open to, you know, running more women candidates. And there's still, you know, we may have had, um, you know, many, um, many political leaders of different parties in Alberta, um, women emerging as leaders. But if we look at the federal level, we're not seeing that, right? The We're not seeing either the, the liberals or the um, um, the cons- the conservative party at the federal level right. having you know having women leaders. So I think as much as there's some things to celebrate, there's some things to say. Hey, this is you know we're doing better, but we're certainly we're certainly not there yet. Absolutely, I think that's the perfect point, uh, Doctor. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you being here. Okay. Thanks for inviting me. Bye. That is Dr. Susan Francisquet, who is a professor of political science at the University of Calgary, co-author of Cabinet's Minister in Gender. Daniel Smith being sworn in as the 19th Premier of Alberta. That's happening at 11 o'clock today. Um, the next job, of course, will be to get a seat in the Legislative Assembly. She doesn't have that. She's unelected. Um, will be leader of the party, will be premier of the province, but she will not be an elected MLA, which means she cannot actually take part in proceedings within the legislature. So that's job one. The announcement this weekend was the by-election will not be in Calgary Elbow, which is vacant. Instead, she will be running in Brooks Medicine Hat, which means that uh, Michaela Fry, who was the representative for the UCP in that riding, has agreed to step down so that a by-election can be held there. Um, the opposition, NDP running a candidate, and of course the Alberta party as well, Barry Morishita, a name that will be very familiar, especially to people in that parts of the province. And Barry joins us now. Um, Barry, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. 
No, thank you for the uh, opportunity, Shay. So let's just start. This riding was selected because, let's just be honest with ourselves here, because it's seen as a safe riding by the UCP and one that they don't have to worry much about, and Danielle Smith will get her seat in the legislature. Your reaction? You're a safe riding, Barry. You're a safe opponent. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think you're you're right on with your the assessment. I think the only reason she's running here is because uh, she thinks she can win it with little or no effort. And it, it's uh, it is a slap in the face, particularly for the people of Calgary Elbow. And I, I listened to some of her excuses that, well, you know, that's an urban riding, so you have all of these extra MLAs around that can can support. Fact is, the population's the same. The issues are are different, and uh, they deserve to have representation. So, uh, you know, I I don't think there's any excuse not to call the one in Elbow, whether she runs there or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to Brooks Medicine Hat. Uh, You know, uh, she's right on one point that uh, rural uh, constituencies are very unique. And the fact that she doesn't live here um, uh, kind of is hypocritical to that point. I I think the um, Alberta Party has always recognized that you have to have community uh, MLAs. You have to have representation from the area in order to really champion the cause uh, for people who live in your constituency in Edmonton. And uh, I don't think that's the case. Um, she doesn't live here. She's uh, 300, 300, roughly 250 kilometers away, uh, at least her home base now. Um, I don't think it's fair for the people of uh, Brooks Madison Hat. At least they should be choosing from people who live here, is my opinion. Um, in terms of one of the reasons that she gave, or actually very surprising to me, Michaela Fry, who was the representative, gave was this will provide a much needed voice to the riding, which is a hell of a thing to say when you're the elected representative for the riding. But nonetheless, that's what she said. Has the vo- has the riding been underrepresented? Does it need a stronger voice? Has this been an issue in the riding? I mean, it, it's your riding, Barry. Yeah, you know, you know what? In the last uh, few governments, uh, MLAs have been more and more tied up in the sense that they're not allowed to you don't see them speaking you don't see them showing up to events i think that was the case here to a large degree i heard of lots of council meetings i myself when i was a mayor was a mayor uh, only uh, had several meetings canceled uh, requests i know that currently happened with the current mla i'm not sure what the underlying issue is but the goal the MLA is supposed to represent that community and be there to take those issues to Edmonton. Now, when it comes to the forgotten corner, and and we are a pretty independent group out here, there is no doubt about it. And one of our biggest problems, uh, I think, in the past has been, and we've had some great representation here. We've had cabinet ministers from here, uh, our own MLA, former doctor, uh, Lyle Obergrand, for the leadership. and He was an education minister, finance minister, uh, so um, I, I don't know that, you know, uh, if you talk about issues being heightened because you have a cabinet minister, but the fact is you're supposed to be running all of Alberta. The MLA's job is to do those pieces. And I think if we've been forgotten, it's been uh, because uh, the issues of rural Alberta, generally speaking, haven't been heightened uh, at the table, but I don't think they will be because the premier's there. I think they would be because... Uh, you have strong MLAs that represent those individual and very unique issues, of which this uh, community has a lot of them, including the approach to health care and education. And 
EMS and HALO and all those things that are make very unique for this area that uh, you need to live here to understand them. Uh, as leader of the UC, uh, the Alberta Party, uh, of course, you're looking for a seat too, uh, the same as Daniel Smith. Was it was the intention always to run in this riding next May? I mean, you're not, are you a parachute candidate, Barry, or was this always the riding that Barry Morishita, as leader of the Alberta Party, was going to run in in May of 2023? Yeah, in fact, I'm registered, uh, I don't know if I'm registered with, I, I was nominated by the Constituency Association here to run in the general election in May of 2023. Always my intention to run here because I believe if you're, you're the leader of the party, you should set the example that you don't uh, parachute yourself into a riding you win in, you run because you're really passionate about representing the community. That's what I've done my, my entire career in terms of uh, elected office. Uh, I've been part of the region um, in all kinds of different organizations, uh, including tourism and provincial municipal associations. And, uh, you know, I was elected here in Brooks for 16 years, and uh, I know the community really well. I know the people, a lot of people here, and uh, I believe I'm well-suited to uh, advocate for their needs because I understand them. You can be called on the phone, you can talk to me, you can uh, share your issues with me, and that's the kind of MLA I'll be. Um, you know, in other instances where we've seen a leader seeking a seat, there has been a convention made by the opposition parties to not run in that writing because it is seen as important to have the leader within the legislature. Uh, was there any discussion about that? Has there been discussion with the NDP to say, you know what, maybe only one of us should run to improve our chances? Or is it sort of everybody's in their own camps and running to win this election and there's none of that happening? Yeah, you know, I, I, I have not spoken to anybody specifically. When it comes to the convention of, you know, letting the leader kind of get a seat, I, you know, I was here too. I was here. They knew I was here. Their team knew I was here. They knew that I was uh, nominated and, and going to run in Brooks uh, Medicine Hat. So, you know, you have to ask Danielle what the motivation yeah. was for doing that because at the end of the day, um, she has uh, 50-some MLAs, and uh, I'm not sure exactly what the reason was she, uh, Michaela, decided to do that or whatever, but um, she said she was going to be running as late as August, that she was going to be running in Livingston McLeod, and that, you know, she's old-fashioned that way. She thinks you need to live in the riding. So, you know, the hypocrisy of that is is kind of hard to take. Um, and the other thing about it is, is she said in her speech that she was going to, you know, there's going to be this new era of MLAs having a voice and, and being representative of their, of their areas. And, I, you know, this just doesn't speak to that. This speaks to uh, a situation where uh, I'm coming in there, I need a seat, this is best for Danielle Smith, and this is best for the UCP. And unfortunately, people are tired of that. I just listened to some of your program about the frustration that happens because people are getting so divided. But when they see more and more of the politics play out, the way it's been, negative, uh, divisive, uh, when people only see politicians doing what's best for them, instead of taking that, sitting back and, and listening and understanding what's best for the people in the riding, that, that deteriorates our conversation even more. And uh, I, I was hoping that she would start off by uh, at least honoring those types of commitments that she's made in speech after speech. Well, we'll see how it all plays out. It's going to be fascinating to watch. And uh, Barry, we will check in as the race goes on. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Shay. You have a great day. You too. That's Barry Morishita, who is leader of the Alberta Party.
And, as we said, he is the candidate for Brooks Medicine Hat, along with Daniel Smith. In the upcoming by-election, the NDP running a candidate named Gwendolyn Dirk. Hockey Canada's CEO and the entire board of directors will leave the organization after facing fierce criticism for its handling of the alleged sexual assaults and all the rest. The national organization has announced the departures in a statement on uh, Tuesday morning after hearing months and months of calls for leadership changes within the body and seeing its major sponsors walk away over the past week. The statement says, effective immediately, Hockey Canada's board announced the departure of Chief Executive Officer Scott Smith. The entire board has also agreed to step down to make room for a new slate of directors. An interim management committee will be put in place, which will guide the organization until no later than a newly constituted board appoints a new CEO to lead the organization, which is going to be done no later than an upcoming virtual election scheduled for December 17th. So there's your timeline, and you're probably pretty familiar with how we got to this point. I mean, as I said many times, at some point in the very near future, we were going to be uh, Hockey Canada being a CEO and a board in charge of absolutely nothing because the provincial partners have abandoned them, sponsors have abandoned them, and they were virtually being, you know, just left out in the woods here and couldn't seem to grasp it, which is the interesting part. We're going to chat now with Jennifer Quaid, who is an associate professor and the vice dean of research at the Faculty of Law, the civil section at the University of Ottawa. Jennifer, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Shay, for having me on. Um, are, are you surprised, uh, like I am, that it took this long to get to what I think we all knew was the inevitable outcome several weeks ago, wasn't it? Oh, yes, I agree with you. It is amazing how long it took and um, how long they, they held out and just said, well, you know, this is scapegoating and we yeah, shouldn't be yeah. blamed for what happened before. Unfortunately, when you take the top job at an organization like that, you have to, you answer for the organization. And, you know, that's that's unfortunately how it has to play out. So I agree with you. It, it's surprising how long it took. When you take a look at typically how some sort of crisis involving, I don't know, a company, an organization like Hockey Canada, whatever the case may be, how they would be typically told to handle this or would have the experience and the wherewithal how to handle a situation like this. Um, how different is what Hockey Canada did? It seems to go against every convention of crisis management, doesn't it? Oh, yes, I agree. I, I, I think I'm not a, I'm not a management uh, professor. I'm a law professor. But if I were a management professor, it seems to me this is a, an excellent textbook example of what not to do. But it is interesting that, you know, it seems to happen more often than we expect that organizations um, do the exact opposite of what what should be staring them in the face. And that I think that the, the, the main flaw here in terms of the new management, obviously I can't speak to, you know, before in the, in the sense that we don't know all the facts about that, although it does look pretty bad, is that you have to recognize when there's a problem and you have to recognize that you need to start taking steps to address it. And I think that's what this board and this management um, committee just didn't do. Yes. They couldn't see that, you know, they had to they had to regain confidence. That meant they had to do more than talk. They had to start doing some things differently. And so it's how they handled the crisis rather than the crisis itself that is, that's, I think, was yeah. their downfall. I think you're right. In terms of what the board may have subjected themselves to, ultimately it's cost them their positions, no question about that, and the CEO, but just the liability that Hockey Canada takes on in a situation like this, the way you handle these sorts of situations can really um, limit 
the amount of liability or uh, exacerbate it, can it not? I mean, the way they've handled this, they haven't done themselves any favor in terms of legal exposure or financial or anything like that. They haven't done themselves any favors, but it's hard at this stage, I have to admit, as someone who's on the outside, we don't have access to their financials. We don't have access to, you know, the minutes of meetings and how decisions were made. I mean, something I would really like to know is how the Risk Assessment Committee of the board looked at these issues. it, It seems from the outside that they were not following, you know, what would have been best practices in risk management um, at that time in 2018, certainly. Uh, so it's it's surprising, but you know, without any information, it's hard to know. Usually, the the management team and board of directors who act for an organization or on behalf of an organization are not automatically personally liable. There has to be something more in there to to subject them to personal liability. But it all depends on the facts, and and we don't have a right, lot of information yeah. about who decided what and who knew what. Going forward from here, like I said, um, everybody's gone. The board of directors is gone. The CEO is gone. An interim management committee will be put in place, but they'll be gone by December 17th as a new slate of directors is to be uh, put forward for an upcoming election on December 17th. Does this seem a little more in line with what you would expect in a situation like this? Have they managed to get this train back on track, perhaps? Well, they've done, I think, what was what was the absolute bare minimum <laughs> table stakes. I mean, I you know, I'm I'm a hockey parent like many parents. I worry about the future of the organization and and you know, hockey is still a popular sport in Canada. Kids enjoy playing it. I hope that this organization can turn itself around because I worry what happens if if it doesn't make it and we have to create a new organization from scratch. I mean, yeah. maybe that's what's needed, but I what I hope is that we don't all believe that just this single act of changing the leadership, you know, once is the end of the story. I mean, organizations have to continue to adapt and stay on top of things. So there's no way we're going to snap our fingers and everything changes on December 17th. It's got to be a process. I think what they have to do, though, is send the signal that they're willing to do it. But actions are going to speak a lot louder than words. So it's we'll have to wait and see. No, oh, absolutely. And Canadians will be watching so closely. Um, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having me on. Bye. That is Jennifer Quaid, who is a associate professor and vice dean of research at the Faculty of Law in the Civil Section at the University of Ottawa. Because it's a very interesting study that recently came out uh, from McDonald Laurier Institute, taking a look at how young people in our country are sort of viewing their future. Uh, looking forward in terms of, you know, their their life, uh, basically economics. How do things look for them in terms of economics, standard of living, all the rest of that stuff? And you know what? They're not taking a very positive view of things, and they've got some good reasons for that. Uh, they definitely have some concerns about where they're going to be, how they're going to stack up compared to their parents, quality of life. Uh, Aaron Woodrick is the director of the McDonald Laurier's Institute of Domestic Policy program, and he joins us now. Aaron, uh, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Shay. Interesting study and, or survey. Let's uh, let's define the parameters here. You're talking to young people, basically under thirty, about their future, right? Yeah, it was from sort of 18 to 30-year-old. We did focus groups. We did some polling as well as a result. Really, we were just trying to figure out, dig a little bit deeper on the idea that younger people are pessimistic, right? Like there's a lot of sort of 
general assumptions these days that people, uh, younger people, are pessimistic about their futures. We wanted to sort of quantify that and try and figure out exactly what was driving that. Um, And so we did that. And yes, it's true that generally younger people are definitely a lot more pessimistic than older folks. But far and away, we found that the number one driver of that was was economic and specifically housing. Housing was definitely the dominant theme in the survey. Uh, Cost of living was a close second. So, you know, we hear often, uh, you know, that, that COVID was hard on younger people. Things like climate change are on their mind. That's true, but it was paled in comparison to bread and butter issues of cost um, and just this idea that most of them thought they would probably never be able to buy a home. So when you're talking about housing, is that what it is like home ownership or, or housing generally speaking? Yeah, home ownership was the top one. A rent was also up there. Um, okay. So people struggling just to just to put a roof over their heads, never mind buying one. But just the idea that, um, you know, housing is essentially out of reach for middle class or working class people. You know, some of the folks in the focus groups would bring up things like, you know, my, my parents managed to buy a house in a large city on one income. And that just seems crazy to them now that that would have that was that's possible. Um, so they're they're quite down in the dumps about it. Um, and, you know, I think it's really up to policymakers to, to give these youth some hope um, that they're going to do something to try and address some of these problems. Yeah. And generally speaking, they uh, I was surprised to hear this because, I mean, typically this is not the way that a society that functions well uh, has things set up. Most Canadians uh, under the age of 30 right now do not anticipate a better quality of life than their parents. They actually think their parents probably are going to be better off uh, when all is said and done than, than they'll ever attain, which which is sort of the opposite of the way it's supposed to work, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. It's a big change. It's a change we haven't seen, certainly, in several generations. Each generation has been better off than the last. So this is a big reversal. We also saw that come through in the in the focus groups, especially, Shay, that there was a, there was a lot of um, resentment and bitterness. And yeah. it's almost as if um, a lot of them feel that the, their parents' generation sort of raided the cupboard um, and, and had it pretty good. Uh, you know, obviously, different parents are going to have different perspectives on these things, but they really sort of feel that their parents' generation got a much better deal than they're getting. And you're really saw that come out time and again in these surveys. What does this mean for us as a society, as a country? I mean, this kind of thinking and this kind of shift in, in um, you know, economic outlook, that's going to have an impact on us as a society, isn't it? It absolutely is. You already see it manifest itself politically, right? I think yeah. you may be in for you've heard of uh, you've heard of sort of class warfare. Well, I think we may in for be in for generational warfare pretty soon, right? Because you have younger people saying things like "I can't find a job" or "I can't buy a house," uh, whereas older folks, of course, um, you know, are protected above their of their entitlements, of their payments like old age pensions, old age security. Um, so I think you're going to see this play itself out at the political level, as you're going to see uh, people sort of rather than regionally or other divides, it may become a regional divide. If this, if nothing's done to address this trend, um, if you're in government and if you're someone who's sort of deciding, okay, this is coming down the pipe, we can see it; it's pretty clear. What kind of policy do we need to be looking at? How can you put policy around this? Yeah, number one is definitely housing. I mean, we all know why housing is a problem right now. We don't have enough of it. It's a supply issue that largely falls to municipalities in this country. Um, so really, it's it's up to the provincial and federal governments to find ways around the perverse incentives that municipalities have. I have people ask me all the time, well, if they know they need to build more houses, why don't we? And, and the answer is simple. If you're a count, city councillor or an alderman in, an, in a part of a city where the people there are happy and they don't want change, they're going to keep voting for someone who promises that. And so it's very hard to sort of break out of that trap. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really up to different levels of government to give municipalities the, the, the 
tools, the power, the incentives to overcome this and build more houses. Because to me, uh, if nothing is done over the next sort of five to ten years to address this housing, it is, uh, it's not only going to, to, to create sort of political blowback, I think it's going to have serious consequences for our economy and you're going to see you, may, you run the risk of having Canadians leaving um, because they really don't see any future here. And uh, last one, and then I'll let you go, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing it on the text line, and we hear it whenever we talk about this. Uh, older people saying, yeah, whatever. This is kids. Yeah. Every, every generation has had challenges like this. Quit your wine, and we had it tough, too. They're not just making this up. They are facing legitimate factors and challenges that previous generations just did not see, Right. Yeah, the whole sort of you're too soft and you're snowflake. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, you can argue about that stuff when it comes to, for example, the job market. But on housing, it's absolutely crystal clear. I mean, housing is astronomically expensive. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is impossible for young people to buy a house. That is not sour grapes. That's just that's just a fact of life. Gotcha. Aaron, thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot. That is uh, Aaron Woodrick, who is with McDonald Laurier Institute, their domestic policy program, a survey on how young people are viewing their, their futures. Not positively. And the fact that, you know what, legitimately, I mean, sure, I think every generation does say that to their parents. Oh, you had it so much better than we did, right? And then conversely, <laughs> as we get older, we'll say, oh, it was so much easier back in the day. Or, uh, and there's some elements of truth in both of those statements, but at the same time, it's not 100% true. When you take a look at the cost of home ownership, just sitting where I'm sitting right now, right? And I bought my first house in 1998, so you're talking 25 years. The cost of that house now, you can't get a house in the city of Edmonton for that, not even close. And uh, that's happened, you know, well within a generation. The cost of home ownership has quadrupled uh, in my neighborhood. So I understand that, that's different, that's a mass, People aren't getting paid four times as much as they were, but houses are costing four times as much as they did. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.